The views expressed in this program are those of the participants. Patterns are changing. They're both deep in cycle C now, and going deeper. What does it mean? There is a wish in all humans, possibly the deepest of all their wishes. A wish? To die. Not Logan, not Jessica. I don't care what the readouts are, they're wrong. Your machines are lying. They can't lie any more than we can. They can only malfunction. Then find the malfunction, because I tell you the data is wrong. Nothing will ever make me believe otherwise. Logan and Jessica want to live. The humans, they're approaching the station. Who are they, these sandmen? Security police from the city of Domes. Why are they hunting you? Not me. Logan and Jessica, they're the fugitives. If the Sandmen take them back to the city, they'll be condemned to death. Did they break some law? Only the law that puts everyone to death at 30. A death culture. Now I understand the intensity of their dream patterns. There isn't much time. Welcome, everyone. It is Thursday, September 22nd, 2016. I'm Bob Metz. I'm Robert Vaughn. And this is Just Right, broadcasting around the world and online. Join us for an hour of discussion that's not right-wing. It's Just Right. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be alright. Are we running out of time? Does man have an innate death wish, or is it just a few of us who long for death? The answer to these and many other questions we'll get into in the first quarter, and in the second quarter, Bob, what are you going to be talking about? Well, Robert, the term polarization of an issue takes on an entirely new meaning (laughs) during the second half of our presentation today, as we take a look at feminism's objections to stripping and to sexually suggestive movements. Can you imagine? Yes, I can, actually. (laughs) (laughs) The movements or the objection? (laughs) Move along, move along. (laughs) Feminists have become the caricatures of George Orwell's anti-sex leaguers, and the recent Take Back the Night march that took place a week ago today in London, Ontario, offered us a whopping demonstration of that ugly truth. But more on all that coming up. But let's begin with our reminder that you can write us at feedback at justrightmedia.org, follow us on Twitter, like us on Facebook, subscribe to Just Right on iTunes, hear us on WBCQ at 5130 kHz and on channel 292 at 6070 kilohertz, and visit us at www.justrightmedia.org. Well, Bob, to answer those questions I started off with, man does not have a death wish. There you go. There's your answer. I don't believe he does have a death wish. Um, That clip was, of course, from Logan's Run the TV series. Excellent series, by the way. Yeah, from many years ago. Only short-lived, but still quite uh, quite good. You don't think anyone has a death wish? No, I didn't say that. Oh, okay. I said man does not have a death wish. And, of course, when I say man, I always use the generic term man qua man. Man as as a species, Mm -hmm. man as, as humanity. We don't have a death wish. Although, as you might allude to, a very large percentage of man does crave death, is naturally destructive, is anti-life, anti-happiness, is demonstrably irrational. This portion of society in the political realm is called the left. (laughs) Just with any generalization of people's behavior, though, there's a bell curve under which people fall, and the norms and extremes of the behaviors of the left is no exception. 
I say this not just because I have many friends who I would label as left politically, but because of the evidence. Normally, lefty behavior has all the characteristics I've just described, plus more. They're greedy, envious, hateful, racist, hurtful, lazy, and generally unhappy. Not all of them necessarily exhibit all of these traits all at the same time. Some of the people on the left behave this way out of a sense of perpetual malice, but some only because they're making honest mistakes in reasoning. In fact, I would venture to say, and I'm going to give people the benefit of the doubt here, many of them, that most lefties are lefties and act like lefties because they have made errors in judgment, have not fully thought out the consequences of their actions or beliefs, have reached conclusions based on falsifiable premises, which they've not identified, or are simply ignorant of all the facts necessary to to come to judgments which conform to reality or to truth. I'm an optimist in my belief that most people are rational and that when presented with all of the facts of a given problem and when shown how to properly consider a particular situation, we'll arrive at a correct conclusion. I'm an optimist about this because I drive on public highways and I'm fairly confident that the cars in the opposing lane will stay in the opposing lane. I buy food from the general public and I'm fairly sure that they're not intentionally trying to poison it as it wouldn't be in their best interest to do so. I use tools that do the job that we're intended to do because the people who design and build them realize that nature to be commanded must be obeyed and that a thousand rational minds working for a common purpose have made a million rational decisions to come up with a chainsaw that'll cut wood without blowing up, have developed a plane that stays in the air until the pilot wishes it to land, have created a razor blade that cuts the hair on my face without slicing my face off. This is evidence that people are basically rational because things work. The evidence is all around us that people can act rationally, and yet in the political realm, that sphere of human behavior which deals with the interactions of people There is ample evidence that there's a large segment of the population which is irrational. For lefties, politics is a realm where A is not A, where 2 plus 2 equals 5, where death rather than life is the goal, and where misery and sadness is preferable to joy and happiness. They not only demonstrate their insanity at the ballot box, but they're sometimes They sometimes flaunt their irrationality. They wear clothing depicting the homophobic racist murderer, Che Guevara, for example. They defecate on police cars at the Occupy Wall Street protests. They smash and steal and loot and burn and call themselves the 99%. The evidence that politics is an area of philosophy where many act without reason, without regard for consequence, and with contempt for life and happiness is often as plain as the nose on your face and requires only a superficial study, and yet people refuse to see. In economics, it is self-evident that capitalism is better than socialism. I say it is self-evident because it requires little effort to see. There is a, a direct and causal relationship between people who are happier and people who live in capitalistic countries. The degree to which a country is capitalistic is directly proportional to the degree to which its citizens are happy and healthy. And it's not just a correlation, it's a causal relationship. History has borne this out. 
And yet today, we have a very large segment of the population who remain convinced, despite the evidence to the contrary, that a centrally planned economy is better than an economy of freedom and capitalism. These lefties who promote and advocate for socialism are advocating and promoting misery and death. The facts bear it out. History bears it out. But it's not just in the area of economics and politics that the left prefer misery to happiness. To most of us, sex is an act of pleasure, joy, and love. A celebration of life, of being alive. To the left, especially the feminist left, and I understand you're going to be talking about this at length oh, later sure on. Bob. Am. <laughs> sex is domination of man over woman. Sex is rape. Sex is an act of degradation for the woman and oppression by the man. In the area of the environment, the left prefer protecting inanimate trees and rocks over extracting those raw materials for the use of man to produce the goods necessary to clothe him, move him, house him, and make him happy. As if there weren't enough misery and sadness in the world, the left revels in other people's destruction, apparently. They look at victims, not as people to be pitied necessarily, but people to be emulated. Their heroes are the downtrodden and the beaten. They idolize and glorify the lame, the weak, the ugly, and the common. Victims become tools of the left's political goal of control and regulation. You know, you made an interesting point about people behaving rationally or not rationally. And it's been my experience that rational behavior is a natural consequence of living in a free environment. And irrational behavior tends to get worse as you are in a captive situation where you don't have choices. It reminds me of an animal in a cage. Yes. If you watch an animal in a cage, you do not see it in nature. You do not see it acting naturally. It'll pace back and forth. It'll act threatening. Instead of running, it can't run. It's got to attack. Right? There's a psychological word and, for what you're describing. It's called displacement activity. When presented yeah. with two um, choices, uh, an animal has a dilemma. And sometimes it does a third option. Um, and the, the classic experiment is when um, a bird, I think it was, um, if I recall correctly, it was a seagull or something like that, was presented with a, f a flight or fight type of mm -hmm. situation. Rather than flee or fight, it pulls at the ground. Oh. You know, a displacement activity, totally what seems to be for totally irrational, you know, because it's not helping itself. So suddenly it starts taking it on green policies. <laughs> <laughs> It does you know something what? out that of the ordinary. Probably a great analogy. What's yeah. happening? Now, I, I, you know, to be fair, I mean, humans are not lower animals like seagulls and such. You know, I mean, we do no, have but a in politics, faculty. in politics where they do not think abstractly, they kind of are. That's why they can relate to rocks and, and stuff like that, but not to production or to people. Right, because production is a complex abstraction to mm -hmm. them. Whereas rocks and trees, well, we can see those. Yeah. Right. You know, they, this is their displacement activity mm -hmm. of sorts. They go out and they loot and but rob and burn. And, you know, um, that I'm sure explains the behavior of many on the left to a situation that's just beyond their understanding. All of us have had our bout with unhappiness and misery. I'm sure we have. I mean, we're human. Going through the death of a loved one, the loss of a job, an unrequited love affair, or just being lonely from time to time. But for most of us, such unhappiness is temporary, and we know it. Sadness isn't and shouldn't be the normal condition of life. When most of us have these feelings, we get over them, knowing that they won't last. We combat them and try to reconcile ourselves with what it was that made us sad. 
Happiness is the norm of human life. Or if it's not the norm, it should at least be the goal. I mean, people don't walk around, I know, people don't walk around just like happy all the time. People walk around with an even keel mostly. But the, life is punctuated with bouts of happiness, and, and that's what we want. We pursue yeah, it's not just a feeling. It's not just a feeling. Mm-hmm. You could feel miserable and still be happy, you know. It's because I think you have a positive sense of life. And if you feel that you always have an option of doing something or changing something, if that's just there for you. Choice is so important to happiness, it's unbelievable. Mm-hmm. That's why I don't understand the left, mm-hmm. because they, they apparently want to be controlled. Of course. And they want and to, to control. To control, <laughs> yeah. You know, on the left, it seems that misery is something to seek out rather than happiness. Or if you can't find it, you create misery. For the left, it seems that happiness is an unnatural condition of man that has to be eradicated. If I'm not happy, says the lefty, then nobody else should be happy. The thing is, I, you need to build an ability to just be yourself and not be doing something. That's what the phones yes. are taking away, yes. is the ability to just sit there like this. That's being a person, right? Yes. No one can, they gotta, uh, you gotta check. Because, there, you know, underneath everything in your life, there's that thing, that empty, forever empty. You know what I'm talking about? <laughs> that, yes. Yes. Yes, I, yes. Yes, Just I know that, what you're that talking knowledge about. that it's all for nothing and you're alone. You know, it's down there. And sometimes when things clear away, you're not watching it, you're in your car, and you start going, oh, no, here it comes <laughs> that I am alone. Like, it starts to visit on you. You know, just the sadness. Yes. Life is tremendously sad just by, you know, being in it. And so you're driving, and then you go, uh, that's why we text and drive. I look around, pretty much 100% of people driving are texting. Yes. And they're killing, everybody's murdering each other with their cars. Yes. But people are willing to risk taking a life and ruining their own because they don't want to be alone for a second. I was in my car one time, and a Bruce Springsteen song comes on, and it made me really sad. It's like Jungle, what the one's on Jungle song? Jungle Land. Jungle, this one where he goes, and I heard it, and it gave me kind of like a fall back to school depression feeling. It made me really sad. Yeah. And I go, okay, I'm getting sad. I've got to get the phone and write hi to like 50 people. Anyway, I started to get that sad feeling, and I was reaching for the phone, and I said, you know what, don't. Just be sad. Just let the sadness, just stand in the way of it and let it hit you like a truck. <laughs> and I f- let it come and bruise, and I just started to feel, oh my God. And I pulled over and I just cried like a bitch. I cried so much and, I, and it was beautiful. It was like this beautiful, it was just this, p- sadness is poetic. You're, you're lucky to live sad moments. And then I had happy feelings because because when you let yourself feel sad, yes. your body has like antibodies. It has happiness that comes rushing in, rushing in to meet the sadness. So you're, I was grateful to feel sad, and then I met it with true, profound happiness. It was such a trip, you know. And the thing is, because we don't want that first bit of sad, yeah. we push it away with like a little phone for the food, <laughs> and you get you get a little kind of. You never feel completely sad or completely happy. You right. just feel kind of satisfied with your product. Yes. And then you die. So Louis C.K. understands the human condition, I think. He I understands think so. how to let happiness be his goal and to 
also accept sadness. You know, the founders of the United States created that nation to allow people to pursue happiness. And for many, that dream of living a prosperous and happy life, a long life, has been realized due in no small measure to the rules of the government set up by those men. And yet in the intervening 240 years, there's been a steady creep every year to a society who pursues misery. The norm is still happiness and its pursuit, but with every passing election, with every cop killed by a supporter of Black Lives Matter, with every new tax, with every new regulation and law, with every new sit-in protest rally against freedom and capitalism, the United States and the rest of the West has become a nation where many pursue misery and death. I was going to say, with every new increase in hydro rates. You know? <laughs> Especially here in Ontario. That is miserable is to a lot of people. Because it takes away a whole part of their life when they have to put it into subsidizing a, a previous government disaster. Yeah. Right? They don't see the misery. I mean, what yeah. was it, Frederick Bastiat, the seen and the unseen? Right. Oh, here we have wind, wind energy and solar energy. Great. But what is not seen is the misery out of lost choices and control Uh, Because people are shelling out so many times more than they should for electricity. You know, it's not just in politics, as I said before, where the left have made their mark of misery. They've left their mark in education, journalism, science, art, literature, you name it. Almost every aspect of the human condition has been influenced negatively by the left. It's no wonder they're called sinister. Mm In education, we see children graduating who cannot read and write. And they graduate. (laughs) There's the the irony. The universities have become havens for people who are coasting in life and have expectations of success with degrees in things like gender studies. Journalism, well, we've been here on this topic before many times. For journalists today, facts just simply get in the way of their left-wing narrative. Science, again, we've covered this has been riddled with deceit and superstition as researchers clamor for government funding for projects which have little utilitarian or scientific value or just downright downright fraudulent. Now I'm going to get into some of the arts and literature. This is an area of philosophy, the aesthetics, that I particularly like talking about Mm. and, and contemplating. You know, in literature we see the left drool over books which honor the common, the vulgar, and the profane, and most publishers rejecting books which might project a positive theme with a strong, competent hero. It's not that those books don't exist. It's just that they're becoming less and less the norm for publishing houses these days. As a matter of fact, I just... Maybe it's because they don't sell because of the mentality out there. I don't know if it's a combination of the, the don't sell or, or you know, uh, chicken and egg type of thing. Mm-hmm. You know, is it that they don't sell or because the books in the past have conditioned people to expect books that are uh, depraved. I just uh, heard a, a recent interview of Orson Scott Carr, the science fiction writer, who um, is known because of his uh, right-wing politics and religious beliefs. And he said that in today's um, publishing world, he would not be able to break into it. Because of his political beliefs. Yeah, it just would not happen. And I believe him. The left, you know, as a, as a group, adore books like uh, The Grapes of Wrath, Death of a Salesman, you know, depressing novels of failure and misery. The bane of any high school kid who had to read them, uh, like a prob- you probably read them, Bob, yeah. but, you know, and write a book report on those, on those kinds of novels. And, 
and how profound they were. You know, that was such misery for a high school student to be able to read that stuff, to have to read that stuff. You know, as an experiment, I once decided to read some Pulitzer award-winning books, novels, to see what it was that would excite the Columbia University panel who awards that particular distinction. I read Gone with the Wind, just recently, by the way, and loved it. I think it was a, it was a fantastic novel. But it was published in 1937, and the left, while strong at that time, you know, hadn't completely permeated academe. Only three years later, though, the Grapes of Wrath gained the honor of a Pulitzer Prize. The left had taken hold in 1940, for sure. You know, I read The Old Man in the Sea, another Pulitzer it gives Prize. It Gone winning. with the Wind a new, a new meaning, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah, what's Gone with the Wind is not just the South, but Gone with the <laughs> Wind right. is, is normality. Uh, the Old Man in the Sea, I don't know if you've ever read that. Yes, uh, I have. By Hemingway, Long not a Pulitzer one. Hardly a novel, but a short story of misery and pain. It really doesn't go anywhere, you know, just a man in a boat. But as far from uplifting as one can get, it's certainly not what I would call pursuing happiness. I tried to read The Shipping News by Annie Prohl, a novel whose protagonist is a self-loathing loser. Try as I might, I couldn't read a book with creative punctuation and no capitalization. Her writing style is the literary equivalent of a Jackson Pollock. And then I read The Amazing Adventures of Cavalier and Clay by Michael Chabon and discovered that the secret to writing a Pulitzer Award-winning novel was to include scatological homosexual scenes and finish with an absolutely boring ending to a non-story. Or am I just missing something? I don't know. It's like looking at, a, like I said, a, a piece of modern art, which is nothing but garbage, and um, being confronted by the left saying, oh, you just under, don't understand the author. You just don't understand. You, well, you the have problem no is soul. we do. Yeah, yeah that's <laughs> <don't>. the problem. <laughs> And, it, and we look at them in horror, and they don't realize why. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We're, we're plebes, you know, we're yeah. plebeian just to, to not be able to understand it. You know, in film, the left is more likely to embrace independent films of gratuitous gore and various bodily fluids over the happy endings, typically found in Hollywood, which are meant to appeal to the majority of us who are pursuing that goal, happiness. And of course, while there definitely are some excellent independent films and some terribly trashy Hollywood films, it seems the general consensus is that if it portrays a meaningless existence with no hope of redemption, then it'll be championed as great cinema by the left, regardless if it came from Hollywood, Toronto, or Paris. I haven't seen any of the Academy Award-winning novels in recent years. I don't know if you, Bob? No. No. But I did notice that The Artist, a silent French film, one best picture in 2011. I guess not having sound in your 2011 film is like not having capitals in your prose in the shipping news. How clever of them. How avant-garde. Let's give them an Academy Award. In art, the left drool over haphazard splashes of paint and deride the old masters. You know, I once visited the uh, National Gallery in Ottawa. I don't know if I mentioned this before on the show. And I found, an, um, I don't know what you call it, a piece certainly was an art or sculpture. <laughs> You're not even sure what to call it. <laughs> <laughs> there was a piano in a room by itself, a very large white room. There was some discordant piano music playing over the speakers in the ceiling. The piano had been smashed into a million bits. That was the display. That was the art. That's what I'm supposed to understand. Well, I can see your problem and why you couldn't quite conceive of calling it a piece because it was a bunch of pieces. <laughs> piece of crap is what it was. 
<laughs> you know, here in the Macintosh Gallery, have you ever been that little gallery at the University of Western Ontario? It's called the Macintosh Gallery. Oh, a long time ago. Not yeah. Recently. I saw a landscape hanging on the wall. And you know, and the artist, no doubt, had some talent. It was, um, you know, from afar, at least a little beautiful landscape, depicted a road running through a, a pastoral countryside. I got closer and I noticed a smudge in the middle of the road. The title of the piece was Roadkill. Mm-hmm. That, to me, exemplified the left right there. You know, you have a, a beautiful pastoral landscape. What do you focus on? The dead animal in the middle of the road. That is the mind of the left on art. So whether it's art, literature, science, politics, journalism, the common theme to those on the left is death. It is the blemished and the diseased, the gray and the boring. Life is meaningless and desolate. The problem is just not that the left have these depraved feelings. Let them have their feelings. It's that they want everybody else to feel just like they do. It's quite a lovely Jackson Pollock, isn't it? Yes, it is. What does it say to you? It restates the negativeness of the universe. The hideous, lonely emptiness of existence, nothingness, the predicament of man forced to live in a barren, godless eternity like a tiny flame flickering in an immense void with nothing but waste, horror and degradation forming a useless, bleak straitjacket in a black, absurd cosmos. What are you doing Saturday night? Committing suicide. What about Friday night? Have to talk about the elephant in the room, Megan. Um, The take back the night last week. Mm -hmm. Uh, You were uh, all over the news because of the... uh, the suggestion that they might bring in um, pole exercising or pole uh, fitness. Why pull out before the decision was made and why not come back in? Well, it was really originally about the process because we had made our views clear from the beginning that we weren't in favor of having pole dancing at Take Back the Night. We didn't think it was consistent with the uh, goals of the evening. Um, at the last minute on a Friday at 5.30 when their meeting started at 5 o'clock an email came in saying we're going to do some public consultation about pole dancing the event was the following Thursday you can't do public consultation over uh, social media because it turns into um, you know a huge mess Yeah. Um, and also we believe in providing women with uh, comprehensive information so they can make informed choices and uh, the post on the Facebook page contained only one side of the story and not uh, comprehensive information. So we felt it was uh, really disrespectful to women. So we pulled out and um, then there were, we didn't want to go back in because we felt really disrespected. Um, the staff member from our agency that sits on the Women's Events Committee, uh, her voice was not um, listened to. The Women's Events Committee issued a statement um, on behalf of the committee without consulting with our representative. And so we just felt, you know, this is not our year. We need to build the bridge and we need to do some healing and uh, next year maybe. Which so is, is this is about part of the committee going rogue then and not, not, not respecting... Well, I wouldn't say I wouldn't say committee went rogue. I would say that, of course, there are always differences of opinions in our community. 
Um, and I, we feel that they brought forward something um, sort of at the last minute, which didn't provide enough time for full consultation. You are listening to Just Right, broadcasting around the world on WBCQ in Monticello, Maine, and on Channel 292, Ingolstadt, Germany. And of course, you can access every broadcast of Just Right online by visiting www.justrightmedia.org. What we just heard was my good friend, but always wrong, radical, socialist, feminist Megan Walker on this past Tuesday's CJBK AM 1290's morning show with Ken Eastwood and Lisa Brandt. I'll have more to say about Megan's comments later, but not until after we first let our listeners in on what's been happening with our own local London, Ontario chapter of the International Take Back the Night campaigns and marches. You know, these things take place all over the world. They've been going around for 30 years at 38 least. 38 years. 38, yeah. Unbelievable. Now, the term, of course, polarization of an issue, took on near-literal manifestations in a hilarious feminist versus feminist debate that was uh, literally Orwellian in every sense of that word. Yes, the feminist agenda became quite visibly polarized last week, and what might make the issue seem a bit trivial to most people is that the pole in polarized is spelled (laughs) P-O-L-E, referring to the poles used in pole dancing and stripping. But what appears to be a tempest in a feminist teapot is really evidence of a much greater danger posed by today's feminist movement. Feminism is hard at work creating very unhappy and dysfunctional people in society, just like what you were talking about, Robert. Feminism's predominant agenda is anti-male, anti-heterosexual, and anti-pleasure. Women already had equal rights before and under the law, plus a few that favored them and the right to vote long before I ever appeared on the planet. So whatever feminism is about today, it is not about those two things, equal rights or the right to vote. So so what has suddenly prompted this discussion? Well, as Hank Danizowski reports in the September 16th London Free Press under the heading, March Weathers Pole Fitness Storm. And he writes, the 38th annual Take Back the Night March went off successfully Thursday night, that was a week ago today with a good crowd and perfect weather at Victoria Park. But there was an elephant in the room, or rather in the park. This year's march against gender-based violence became mired in controversy over a planned demonstration of pole fitness, which prompted the London Abused Women's Centre to withdraw from the event even after the pole dancing was dropped. Our committee respects women who engage in pole fitness, pole dance, and or sex work, and we do not condone any disrespectful or judgmental words or actions taken by others on social media or other media platforms, said organizer Julie McDonald to cheers. The controversy erupted earlier in the week over a pole fitness demonstration that was planned before the march that would be staged by the pole house. The London Abused Women's Centre decided to pull out of the annual march, saying pole dancing goes against feminist values and promotes the objectification of women. The Take Back the Night organizers tried to mend the rift by cancelling the pole demonstration. Emily Kalman and Melissa Clackett, owners of the pole house, said the organizing committee approached them about taking part, but they decided to cancel their participation, fearing their presence would draw away from the event's purpose but the London Abused Women's Centre said it still would not participate. I think it sends the message that we're very firm in our values and beliefs that we will stand by those decisions, Centre Program Manager Heather Warham said Tuesday. Critics said pole fitness is closely connected to stripping because women use a metal pole to perform sexually suggestive movements, end quote. Oh dear. (laughs) Yeah. 
Oh, we got the message all right. It's spelled hypocrisy with a super capital H written in 500 point across the page. Uh, you know, the objectification of women does not require promoting. <laughs> it is because men objectivize women that they find stripping attractive in the first place. It's a fact of nature to objectivize things, especially for men, and it's a healthy one at that. Objectivization or objectification, I've heard both words used, does not lead to violence. That's a non sequitur. In fact, I would say that violence is only possible outside of objectification, after two objects become subjects in relation to one another and have some sort of contact. You know, I get the impression that the feminists are objectifying men in their condemnation of men. You are correct. In many ways. They have. So there's your hypocrisy. And collectivizing. Oh, absolutely. Large, yeah. yes. Objectification is otherwise known as something normal, especially for men for whom sight and visual arousal plays a much larger role in the sexual relationship than for women. In fact, we're fans of objectivism. <laughs> On this show, we attempt to objectificate <laughs> everything we discuss. I made that word up. And if you think that the rational connection between those two words, objective and objectification, is mere coincidence, think again. When you look at something or someone objectively, that generally means you do not allow your own personal bias or interests or desires to interfere with your objective assessment of something or someone. You can appreciate either beauty or sexuality for its own sake, not with any intentions of doing anything in particular towards the object of your attention. That's how most men behave. The few that don't behave that way, I would say, aren't men, in my opinion. They've transgendered into beasts. Oh dear. <laughs> Perhaps <laughs> as beasts and not as men, they may actually qualify to be able to participate in the annual Take Back the Night March, given the, you know, the event's criteria. My first reminder that the annual march was approaching came with a report in the Londoner, where a host of contradictions were presented as a way of denying that the whole event is really a man-bashing event. Time to Take Back the Night read the headline by Jay Menard in the Londoner on September 8th and saying that on September 15th that uh, Londoners would march through the streets of downtown London raising awareness towards ending domestic violence in all forms. The purpose of Take Back the Night is to bring awareness to the continued violence against women and gender minorities, explained Julie McDonald, committee chair for the women's events. And already we've got ending domestic violence and continued violence against women and gender minorities. That's a lot on the plate there. You know, it, it strikes me that after 38 years, have they progressed in any way, shape, or form of taking back the night? Making... No, they're just taking our money. That's right. right that's what it's that's all about. their progression yeah. right there. And they say we want survivors of violence to feel supported that they're believed. And here's the big lie. Take Back the Night is inclusive to all members of the community, McDonald explains. Everyone is welcome to the community gathering and rally before the march. Male allies cheer in solidarity from the sidewalks. <laughs> <laughs> and women and gender nonconforming folks, they got to say folks because you can't say men. You can't say anything besides women, so you got to say folks. And we don't know what they are, but they're, as long as they're not men, they're folks, okay? <laughs> it's too stupid. <laughs> anyway, they take over the streets in protest of the continued violence against them, she complained. You know, you can't call them male or female because there's no epistemological way to deal with nonconformity on the law of identity. <laughs> you can't not, not conform with your law of identity. It's exactly like claiming you're, you're breaking the law of gravity. 
Conforming is a political, social concept, not, not a metaphysical one of identity. And then they say, Take Back the Night is a transgender and intersex inclusive event. Huh? Have you ever heard that one before? You, you hear it, yeah. but you don't understand it. Yes. <laughs> An easier way to summarize all the distinctions, of evasions, and outright BS and lies and evil intentions would simply to say, no heterosexual men allowed. <laughs> Leave it at that. You, you, you clear up everything else. Everything else would be yeah, clear. Be, let's be uh, yeah. specific about it. Come on out there. Say the truth. You are anti-man. You're, yeah. you're anti-white. Exactly. You're anti-West. You're anti-freedom. Yeah. You're anti-capitalism. You're a bunch of lefties. <laughs> of course, that would cover every criteria. And, of course, they want everybody to be believed, etc., etc. Even here, the unspoken truth is that they're just expressing exclusions about heterosexual men, the one and only glaring elephant at the center of this whole room of violence. And the media reports continued, quote, Abuse Center quits March and poll fitness flap from Norman de Bono, the London Free Press, September 13th. And he reports, We are concerned about this. We feel it ignores violence against women, said Heather Warham, program manager, London Abuse Women's Center, referring to the pole dancing. Quote, This is a feminist event, and pole dancing is not an act of feminism. It is opposing feminism. We will not solve women's suppression by dancing on a pole. It will not happen. <laughs> okay, we have to... And then, then at the same time, they say we have to respect women's choices. And if a woman chooses to earn her living through sex work but not on a pole. <laughs> we need to respect that and understand the context in which it is taking place. You know, under the... Maybe it's because the pole is a phallic symbol. I don't... <laughs> I don't know. Gee, that, you, there, there might be more, <laughs> more truth to that than you think. I'm not a Freudian, but you know. Yeah, and she concludes, this is an, a difficult, important debate. The divide runs through the women's movement. It's very current, very polarizing. And then Dale Carruthers reports Polak's abuse center still won't march, uh, which was on September 14th in the Free Press. And they featured studio owners Emily Kelman and Melissa Clackett, both 27, on the front page of the newspaper. I showed you that picture. So they got a lot of publicity out of it, even though they got cut out of the event. Good for them. Critics said pole fitness is closely connected to stripping because women use a metal pole to perform sexually suggestive movements. The showcasing the practice at Take Back the Night promotes violence against women and could trigger traumatic memories for attendees who were forced into exotic dancing in the sex trade, they said. Holy cow, there's stretching it, right? On the other side, some said pole fitness is an empowering way for women to express themselves in a healthy way. Demonizing its practitioners, they said, runs contrary to the night's theme of solidarity among women. I think the dialogue that has, uh, this has surfaced is important, said Annalise Trudell, manager of education with the Sexual Assault Center. Judgment has been leveled around individual choices to engage in certain activities, she said. I think it's become really personalized in some ways. Well, there's the word. Personalized? What the hell was it before? Aren't they talking about male violence against women? How much more personal can you get than that? When Trudell fails to mention the contrast of what the issue was about before it became personalized, the word she's avoiding is political. Politicos of the left deny in solidarity that politics is personal. That's practically a slogan around our own political camp. We always say politics mm. is personal. They deny it. For them, it's collective. It's the, po- it's the public. Chris Mack, an instructor at the Pole House, said the practice goes back long before strip clubs existed, citing its popularity in Indian culture dating back hundreds of years. 
So there you can see a clear conflict in what various women even think the march is about. Some think it's about a theme of solidarity. Solidarity is, you know, makes it sound like a women's union movement even. Let's see now, if the march is for women, solidarity with women, then let's see, who does that leave out? <laughs> Maybe we can figure it out by the end of the show today. Others insist the march is about gender-based violence, and others still think it's about ending domestic violence, and there's a couple other objectives in there as well. Solidarity in action. <laughs> and finally, a voice of reason. Don't denounce dancers, says the letter to the editor by Vicki Inchley of Granton, Ontario, in September 14th Free Press, and she wrote, I was dismayed to read the article, Abuse Center Quits March and Pole Fitness Flap. The empowerment of women means celebrating their right to make choices for themselves, whether or not we agree with them. Whatever the origins of pole dancing, whether women choose to pole dance for fun, for fitness, or for other reasons, isn't for anyone to applaud or denounce. If these women were wished to contribute, they ought to be welcomed and not judged. Would the center prefer that only women who live in lifestyle situations that they embrace participate in feminist activities? Ridiculous. When we support other women based only on their ability to reflect our own values or feelings, we become as victimizing as that which we fight against. Isn't that awesome? You're and right, it's quote. a voice of sanity. Yep. Now, let's take a trip back in time to September 9th, 2004, 12 years ago to this month, to a segment of The Tonight Show hosted by Jay Leno just before the then-unknown and soon-to-be big TV hit Desperate Housewives was about to debut for the first time. You'll never guess what came up in the conversation. Uh, my first guest, best known for her role, of course, is Lois Lane in the popular series, Lois and Clark. Uh, she's now starring in a new show on ABC called Desperate Housewives. It just says, <laughs> Desperate <laughs> You almost have to heave, Desperate Housewives. The premiere Sunday, October 3rd. Please welcome our good friend, Terry Hatcher. To see you, kid. You know, I haven't seen you in a long time. You I just know. Kinda... I've been doing porn films. Yeah, <laughs> of course. I, I guess so. There's something you're like busy that. when you're in I, those I just movies. like the it's title, busy. Desperate Housewives. Yes, it's a good title. It's it always has that scene. <laughs> the shower scene, you know, they always have those scenes. Now, what have you been up to? What have you been doing? Um, well, mostly I've been raising my daughter, Emerson, and uh, she's... How old is she now? Six and a half. And I actually um, recently was going through some old baby stuff, and I found a silver rattle from Tiffany's that you gave her wow, when she was born. I remember you were pregnant sitting here. And I still had it. Oh, oh cool. Oh, yeah. that's cool. So that's what I've been doing. Oh, good. Well, good for you. And you look terrific, by the way. You Thank look you. wonderful. Very nice. Very Thank nice. Thank you very much. So how do you, how do you stay in I mean, you, you look better than terrific. How do you stay in How do you... <laughs> Do you have a Woo. special thing that you do? Uh, I like to hike. Um, I Hiking. do Pilates. And Pilates. Uh, write that down. And But really the thing I've been doing lately, I take this class. It's Sheila Kelly's S-Factor. and it's S-Factor? S. S-Factor. And um, it's an exercise class based on stripping. Hello. All right. <laughs> it's all um, geared around stripping moves. And we actually dance on a pole. And... Um, we learn how to lap dance, and uh, it's, I know it sounds funny, but it's great No, it sounds for, great. It doesn't yes, sound funny at all. <laughs> um, it's great for all your muscles, and it's actually really empowering, because it's all about, it's Wait, not it, about it, turning a guy on, about, Jay. It no, it's a, not about turning a guy on. It's about turning yourself on and learning right. to be comfortable with your own body. 
So, I anyways, I, I yeah, but are you? But uh, uh, do most of the girls look like you, or are most of them sort of eating bonbons? All the you know <laughs> what? There's a big, huge range, and I have to say that sensuality and sexuality and confidence just comes from this deeper place. It's not about what you look like. So, <laughs> okay. But are you not getting it? Do I need well, to? I mean, can men take the class, or is it just? No, women? no, it's oh. women only. There's no oh, mirrors. So it's sexist, is yeah. what you're saying. <laughs> Yeah, why can men come and watch? Maybe they'd be interested in being empowered. Yeah, I'm sure they would be. <laughs> there's no mirrors? You can't? No, there's no mirrors, so you don't have to worry about looking at yourself, and they, they make the light very dark and just like it would be in just a Just like in a club. club. I guess there's smoke and a two-drink minimum. <laughs> yeah, so pretty much, pretty much it. Yeah, no, so, I'm going to recommend that. That's a very good idea. <laughs> just, okay, so you're not getting like it. Do I have to show you like what oh, this Can you show me some of the movies? Yeah. Okay. All right, now this is good. Show me. Okay, like, so, like, there you go. Okay, no, like, so wait a second. So conveniently for me, this really is. This is um. This is what we wear in okay. the class. We wear. Is actual, that all you wear? Uh, actually, you can wear as little as you want. Really? Um, there's no uh, nudity. These are kind of my feet are sweaty because I'm nervous. Yeah. Um, um. Anyway, so I got these shoes downtown. Now, do those, don't those normally have goldfish in the bottom? Sometimes they do. They make all sorts of versions. These are kind of the clear, sort okay. of sexy ones. So, you, I'll show you how this works, like from an exercise point of view. Okay. okay. So one move would be like your everything is really, really slow. So you're kind of you've got your abs in really tight, and you know you sort of they do all this stuff where you, not afraid to touch yourself, and you can go down to the ground. And then this one really uses your quads. Because you're every time you go down right, right. and up. And then they teach you this very graceful way of getting up. And this one really uses your quads. Woo! Oh, that's good! See that coming out? I'm gonna come down. Okay, I'm gonna say that's the first one. Alright, we're, we're gonna take a break and cool off. We'll be right back in a second. Okay, so if people are scratching their heads over this, mm -hmm. uh, let's really make it very, very simple. The organizers of the march on Thursday night, the Take Back the Night march, their position on uh, pole fitness and pole fitness being included as part of this event is what? Is that pole fitness is sexually empowering, that it's body positive, that it's sex positive, and it deserves a space at uh, um, Take Back the Night. And our position is that fitness represents an industry that is uh, extremely violent um, uh, towards women, that um, engages in sex trafficking towards women, and that it's a symbol for, uh, you know, patriarchy and the men's violence against women that, that women live under every day. And so that's, it's really antithetical to the purpose of the march, which is, again, to, to promote safety for women and be free from violence, men's violence against women. Wow, there is a clear contrast for you. Here you have, on the one hand, a positive attitude and joyous reactions by everyone to the idea of Terry Hatcher pole dancing. <laughs> she talks about it sexually empowering, body positive, sex positive. There's no question or doubt that people associate pole dancing with sexuality, including, as we heard, Terry Hatcher herself. And they get joy out of it. They loved it. They thought it was fun. In contrast, as heard on CJBK AM 1290 September 12th Andy Udman interview with Heather Warm, 
Pole dancing is all about violence, patriarchy, representative of sex trafficking, a symbol of patriarchy and men's violence against women. Here's another one. Amber Rose blasts fixation on stripper past from September 15th, The Buzz in the London Free Press. Amber Rose has blasted the sexist double standards of the media when it comes to her stripper past. The former dancer-turned-TV personality is often criticized for being a stripper, while Hollywood star Channing Tatum, who wrote a movie based on his exotic dancing origins, is celebrated. The actor's 2012 film Magic Mike spawned a 2015 sequel, and a live show will debut in Las Vegas in March. Channing Tatum was a stripper. He was a stripper just like me, Rose told Cosmopolitan South Africa. Then he became a professional model just like I did. End quote. Well, it's not a double standard. It's the single standard of men being evil. You know, all intentions towards women are violent. Women are good and must always be believed standard. That's what it is. Anything that would appeal to women, including the objectification of men, just as you were saying, Robert, is something to be celebrated. Anything that would appeal to men, including the objectification of women, is sexism and abuse. And just what constitutes stripping anyway? Must nudity be involved? No. It can be, but the strippers go through all stages of undress while doing a strip and can stop at any point depending on where they're doing the stripping or for what reason. Fan dancing, cabaret, seduction, strip clubs, you name it. But as we've heard over and over again from the feminists themselves, Nudity is never mentioned, but rather some form of sexual suggestiveness. I think they've missed the whole point of stripping in the first place. <laughs> stripping is an act of attraction. Hello? It is intended to attract the attention and arouse the attention in a heterosexual relationship of a male. The same issue arose among solidarity feminists when some of them decided to host what they called a slut walk. Remember that? Yeah, I do whose objective it was to make the point that no matter how provocative a woman may or may not dress, that is never a license for anyone to force themselves upon them sexually, nor to suggest that they are responsible for the actions of a rapist because of how they dressed. I was fully supportive of this view. Uh, the London Abused Women's Center, meaning Megan Walker and her gang, was totally opposed to it. Why? Because the very idea of women dressing to attract men broke the men are evil and violent collectivist doctrine. It, it violates everything they're about, right? Today's feminists, like their political sisters before them, are part of the anti-sex league, exactly as described by George Orwell in his, pardon my pun, Orwellian <laughs> book, 1984. If you've under, ever wondered why we call tales of creepy, unnatural, and chilling developments in human societies and governments Orwellian, consider the following quotes from George Orwell's infamous 1984, this one on stripping. Quote, the girl with dark hair was coming towards them across the field. With what seemed a single movement, she tore off her clothes and flung them disdainfully aside. Her body was white and smooth, but it aroused no desire in him. Indeed, he barely looked at it. What overwhelmed him in that instance was admiration for the gesture with which she had thrown her clothes aside. With its grace and carelessness, it seemed to annihilate a whole culture a whole system of thought, as though Big Brother and the party and the thought police could all be swept away into nothingness by a single splendid movement of an arm. That, too, was a gesture belonging to an ancient time. And then there's this quote, and this one's on sex and the anti-sex league, quote, Consorting with prostitutes was forbidden, of course, but it was one of those rules you could occasionally nerve yourself to break. 
It was dangerous, but it wasn't a life and death matter. To be caught with a prostitute might mean five years in a forced labor camp, not more, if you had committed no other offense. <laughs> the aim of the party was not merely to prevent men and women from forming loyalties which it might not be able to control. Its real, undeclared purpose was to remove all pleasure from the sexual act. Not love so much as eroticism was the enemy, inside marriage as well as outside it. All marriages between party members had to be approved by a committee appointed for, for the purpose, and though the principle was never clearly stated, permission was always refused if the couple concerned gave the impression of being physically attracted to one another. The only recognized purpose of marriage was to beget children for the service of the party. Sexual intercourse was to be looked on as a slightly disgusting minor operation, like having an enema. This again was never put into plain words, but in an, in an indirect way it was rubbed into every party member from childhood onwards. There were even organizations such as the Junior Anti-Sex League, which advocated complete celibacy for both sexes. All children were to be begotten by artificial insemination and brought up in public institutions. The party was trying to kill the sex instinct, or if it could not be killed, then to distort it and dirty it. He did not know why this was so, but it seemed natural that it should be so. And as far as the women were concerned, the party's efforts were largely successful, end quote. That's the world we're living in today, Robert. Yeah, totally. You know, these are our symptoms of a death culture. And if you want to talk about this collectivist separating lovers from each other, this goes back quite a ways. It's not just anti-sex, it's anti-love, as, as we heard from Orwell there, you know, and, and pro-force sex sometime. Talk about your death cult, Robert. This is from God of the Machine, Isabel Patterson. This was, of course, written during the, the years of World War II. Quote, in primitive collectivist societies, parents had the power of death over their children. In modern reversions to this unnatural rule, the same power is allotted to the state. In Japan, the absolutely collective society, the family had the power to force young people into marriage, and indeed there was no way, no legal recognition of marriage otherwise. Further, divorces could be ordered and enforced by the family, and this might be done so for no other reason than the young couple grew fond of each other. Their personal affection was considered detrimental to the collective interest of the clan family. Significantly, this feature of collectivism reappeared spontaneously from the same principle in the Oneida community in the United States. To prevent, quote, selfishness, end quote, promiscuity was practiced. And if two young people had a strong mutual attraction, which was called, quote, special love, end quote, it was denounced as antisocial. The young couple were separated and persuaded to change partners frequently. Always collectivism denounces natural affections and relations and suggests shifting personal obligations onto society. It promises easy divorce state support of children, pleasures of promiscuity, and it ends in slavery and violation of personality, end quote. Whoa, George Orwell, move over. Feminists go on and on about gender-based violence. That's their way of saying that men are the problem. No men is their solution. Now, I didn't need a government study to know that the feminist gender-based assertions are ridiculous, out of context, and for the most part contradictory to centuries of history where men served as protectors of women from the ages of chivalry to the present, which is more the truth than anything else. But in addition to that, now there's a government study that just came out and said, and here's a headline, gay students raped, attacked more often, appeared in London Free Press by Mike Stobe, Associated Press, August 15th. 
Quote, U.S. government survey uh, findings further reveal consistent challenges faced by LGBT high school students. Among the findings, nearly one in five of the gay, lesbian, and bisexual students said they'd been raped at some point in their lives, compared to one in 20 in heterosexual students. Nearly one in five who had gone out with someone in the past year said their date had hit them, slammed them against a wall, or committed some other form of violence. That was more than twice what the straight kids reported. Uh, now, what well, one in five said they'd been bullied at school, and also one in five straight kids had, so that's, that's an equal thing. More than one in ten said they'd missed school in the past month because of safety concerns. Less than one in 20 heterosexual kids reported that. More than one in four said they had attempted suicide in the previous 12 months in contrast to one in 16 straight kids reported recent suicide attempts. I, I find those suicide attempts rates kind of high, just on their own, don't you? <laughs> and they concluded this is the first time we can say that nationwide, these are consistent challenges faced by lesbian, gay, and bi youth, said David Bond of the Trevor Project, a U.S.-based suicide prevention organization focused on lesbian, gay, bisexual, and transgender youth. Now, that might, that might account for the focus on the uh, suicide angle there, because that's who did the survey. So you can bet that facts like this will not be included when Megan Walker says, quote, we believe in providing women with comprehensive information so they can make informed choices, end quote, as we heard in the conversation earlier. And she also said, we felt disrespected. We weren't listened to. We made our views clear from the beginning that we weren't in favor of having pole dancing, not consistent with goals of the evening. When Megan Walker says she felt disrespected, what she really means, and she's talking about other feminists, okay, who didn't listen to her. What she really means is she didn't get her way, that others disagreed. So what is being called feminism today is a natural consequence of the leftist thinking you were talking about earlier, Robert, a perversion of what feminism once truly represented. What was once a battle and fight for legitimate individual rights for women has over years morphed into a fight against individual rights, against women, and above all against men, heterosexual women and men, and sex itself, particularly sex for pleasure, against sex as an end in itself. This belief system of doctrine arises from the very sources of life hatred that you've been citing, Robert, and no matter the glaring evidence, as usual, nobody even dares mention the real elephant in the room, sex, not men, not violence. It's about sex. Why do they do this? Recall the words of George Orwell and Isabel Patterson. Let's never forget that feminism is a political movement, a collectivist movement, not a social one, and not one that's bettering the lives or status of women. Like so many other collectivist political movements, it uses the people it pretends to support, like women, to advance its various causes, sometimes conflicting causes, but all geared to its political agenda. With each passing debate and controversy, that's the single consistency that stands out from all the feminist inconsistencies and conflicts. Apparently, you can take back the night, but you can't take back the pole. <laughs> if the night itself is supposed to be a symbol of patriarchy, how come it's okay to take that back and not take back the other symbol of patriarchy? Because unlike the darkness, pole stripping is something that naturally appeals to men. <laughs> and that would be poleitically incorrect. <laughs> it's all a Polish joke, Bob. Yeah. Oh, jeez. Oh, <laughs> Don't forget <laughs> to join us again next week when we'll continue our journey in the right direction. Until then, be right, stay right, do right, act right, think right, and be right back here. We'll see you then. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be all right. 
Are there any gay people here tonight? Any gay guys here tonight? Come on, you can tell us. It's only national TV. <laughs> love the gays, folks. Oh, you gotta love the gays. Huge gay community in Vancouver. You gotta love them. We accept them. You know, they live their lives. Spiritually, you gotta look at it like, hey, they've made a choice to be happy. They go do whatever the hell they want. Good for them. We should all be so lucky to... We can make a choice, not care what anybody thought, and be happy. I mean, geez, if you're a straight guy and you get threatened by a gay guy hitting on you, it's only because you fear another man's going to treat you the same way you treat women. <laughs> huh? Think about that for a little bit, huh? <laughs> the girls usually like that joke. The guys, you could just hear their butts go, Vroom! 